All right, church, let's pray together this morning. Let's ask for the Lord's help. Let's call on his name. Father, we come to you today in the name of Jesus. And Lord, we thank you for those reminders through Psalm that you are above and we are below. Lord Jesus, you are ascended. You are seated at the right hand of of the Father. And all authority is yours, Lord. And we long for that day, Lord Jesus, that hour where all who are in the tombs will hear your voice and come out, Lord. Where this whole world will be set right. Where every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that you are Lord. Lord, we pray come. We long for that day. Lord, we confess today that you are above. You are our source, Lord. Everything good comes down from you, Lord. You're the fountain. Lord, you are the source of sanctification. And this is what we ask for today, Lord, that you would sanctify your bride, that you would cleanse your church, that you would strengthen us, Lord, by your word and by your spirit. God, thank you for your faithfulness. Every time, God, you have nourished our souls where you have where you have encouraged us through your word. Lord, we ask for that today. Train us, Lord Jesus. Come draw near and be greatly glorified. Lord, we pray that you would cause us to care about what you care about today. That you would conform us not just externally, but internally, Lord. Give us your heart, God. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Alright, we come this morning to the preaching of the Word of God. If you have your Bibles... I want to invite you to turn to Matthew 15 this morning. And we're going to begin by reading God's Word together, beginning in verse 21. And without doubt, these are the most important words you're going to hear in the next hour. Words straight from the Holy Spirit. All Scripture is breathed out by God. Let's read our passage together. And because of the length of our passage, I want to invite everyone to stand. This morning, as we read God's word. Verse 21. And Jesus went away from there and withdrew to the district of Tyre and Sidon. And behold, a Canaanite woman from that region came out and was crying, Have mercy on me, O Lord, son of David. My daughter is severely oppressed by a demon. But he did not answer her a word. And his disciples came and begged him, saying, Send her away, for she is crying out after us. And he answered, I was sent only to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. But she came and knelt before him, saying, Lord, help me. And he answered, It is not right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. And she said, Yes, Lord, yet even the dogs eat the crumbs that fall from their master's table. Then Jesus answered her, O woman, great is your faith. Be it done for you as you desire. And her daughter was healed instantly. Jesus went on from there and walked beside the Sea of Galilee, and he went up on the mountain and he sat down there, and great crowds came to him, bringing with them the lame, the blind, the crippled, the mute, and many others. And they put them at his feet, and he healed them, so that the crowds wondered when they saw the mute speaking, the crippled healthy, the lame walking, and the blind seeing. And they glorified the God of Israel. And then Jesus called his disciples to him and he said, I have compassion on the crowd because they have been with me now three days and have nothing to eat. And I am unwilling to send them away hungry, lest they faint on the way. And the disciples said to him, where are we to get enough bread And such a desolate place to feed so great a crowd. And Jesus said to them, how many loaves do you have? 
And they said seven and a few small fish. And directing the crowd to sit on the ground, he took the seven loaves and the fish. And having given thanks, he broke them and gave them to the disciples. And the disciples gave them to the crowds. And they all ate and were satisfied. And they took up seven baskets full of broken pieces left over. Those who ate were 4,000 men besides women and children. And after sending away the crowds, he got into the boat and went to the region of Magadon. This is the word of the Lord to Grace Community Church this morning. You may be seated. Jake, feel free to correct me if I got a buzz in my voice. Um, just do what you need to do. Um, as we read that passage this morning, you may have noticed there's quite a bit of repetition in this narrative. Again, we find the Lord Jesus healing. That's nothing new in Matthew's gospel. And an almost identical miracle of feeding thousands happens in our passage. So there's repetition here, but what's different is the setting. In fact, the revelation about Jesus in this passage is closely tied to the setting, the geography of Palestine. In verse 21, at the very beginning of our passage, Matthew mentions a detail that's supposed to be stunning. But unless you know a little bit about the geography of Israel and especially the message of the Old Testament, you won't understand it. Matthew tells us in verse 21 that Jesus leaves the borders of Israel. That's a really big deal in Matthew's gospel. He goes out of Israel and we are told in verse 21, he goes 50 miles north along the Mediterranean coast into this region of Tyre and Sidon. This is non-Jewish territory. This is Gentile territory. These are two prominent cities of the Roman area known as Phoenicia. And, and today we would call this area Syria. This is where Jesus is ministering to this woman that we're about to be introduced to. Now, if you have any experience reading the Old Testament, especially the prophets, you know that Tyre and Sidon, are, they often show up in the Old Testament prophets in, and not in a good way. The prophets condemn when they, when they pronounce woe upon the nations several times. You see this in Isaiah. You see it especially in the minor prophets that Tyre and Sidon are, are, are uh, uh, judged by God. The prophets pronounce woe against uh, these cities. And so these are notorious Areas of the enemies of Israel, and yet Jesus intentionally uh, moves in this direction. Now, the context of Matthew 15 is also important for us. And Ryan showed us that this last week. This chapter starts with a dispute between Jesus and the Pharisees over cleanliness tradition. You remember that question that they asked Jesus, why don't your disciples wash their hands when they eat? So they're, they're disputing with the Savior about this, these traditions of clean and unclean. And what we're going to see in this passage, verse 21 and to the end of chapter 15, is Jesus is going to bring forth these new paradigms of clean and unclean. And he's going to teach them to his disciples. Where that first conflict was, you know, should they wash their hands and eat? This, this gives us three snapshots of Jesus busting these you know, traditions to the side of what has traditionally been understood in Israel as clean and unclean as Jesus engages the Gentiles. And so one of my aims this morning is to show you this intentional move by Jesus Christ of ministering to the Gentiles. Now, if you are new to reading the New Testament or new to the gospel, that word is a common word in the New Testament, and all it means, Gentile, is non-Jew. Okay, So you, if you have two categories, you can bust up the whole world in two categories, Jews and Gentiles, and all that means is Jews and not Jews. As far as I know, everybody in the room this morning fits in this category of Gentiles. And so when the word of God 
pulls back this veil of Jesus ministering to the nations. This is really good news for us. And I want to, my aim this morning is to help you to see that. All right, verse, verse 22 sets this scene. And we are introduced to this woman who is crying out to Jesus. And I want to mention four things about her to set this scene of what Jesus is teaching us in this passage. Number one, verse 22, she's a Canaanite. Now that's significant. That's another trigger word in the Old Testament. That's the, that's the whole deal about the land. That, that God gave the land to the nation of Israel. And it was called the land of, you guessed it, Canaan. That there were these inhabitants there that were notoriously rebellious. They, you know, they uh, uh, cons- consistently walked in rebellion to, to, to the, got to this place where God had a judgment that he was going to purge the Canaanites out of the land of Palestine and give it to his people, Israel. And so these are notorious enemies of Israel and outsiders. That's the language that we find all throughout the scriptures. Now, to use the language of Ephesians 2, this is what we know about this woman, the Canaanite. She is separated from Christ. Okay, She is alienated from the commonwealth of Israel. This is just Ephesians 2.12. She is a stranger to the covenants of promise. And saddest of all, she has no hope and she has no God. That's what it means to be a Canaanite. Okay, She is an outsider. God had promised grace to his people. Yahweh was the God of Israel, and she was outside those promises. No hope and without God. She was a Canaanite. Number two, she was in great need. And this passage tells us not only was her daughter demonized, the passage actually tells us in verse 22 that her daughter was very severely oppressed by a demon. Which draws us into this scale of demonic influence, you know, in uh, different people's lives. And this little girl was being very severely oppressed by evil spirits. They were tormenting her mind, tormenting her body, and her mother was in great distress. Number three, she comes to Jesus. I don't want you to miss just the, the, just the simplicity of that. She has this great need. And she comes to the only person in the whole world that can help her. She comes to Jesus Christ. And the verb tense in verse 22, it it illustrates something really vivid. It says she was crying out. It's not just that she is one and done, that she cried out. She kept saying, uh, she kept coming to Jesus. She kept addressing Jesus, kept asking for mercy. In fact, one of the things we see in this passage is that she's so persistent in coming to Jesus that she's bothering the disciples and they want her away. I mean, it's getting way past, you know, uh, the, the polite line, whatever that is, and they want her uh, to be sent away. So we have this picture of persistence, but it's not arrogance. It's not a persistence of I belong here. It's a persistence of I am desperate and I got nobody else to go. So I'm coming to Jesus, the only one who can help me. And then number four, and without a doubt, this is the most surprising of all, is you have these words on the lips of a Canaanite woman. She comes to Jesus and she says, son of David. And that's significant. In other words, this outsider separated from Israel comes to Jesus and addresses Jesus as the Jewish Messiah, the son of David. And that language has rich Old Testament background of the promises that God made to King David about his offspring about his son. And, and this is really important in the New Testament. This is revisited several times throughout the New Testament of Jesus being the fulfillment of the Davidic covenant. And so I want to read just a few words of the promise that God made to David in 2 Samuel 7. And I want you to understand this is the category That this woman is understanding Jesus. Jesus, you are this. You are the 2 Samuel 7 woman. 
And so what did God say to David? 2 Samuel 7 verse 12. The Lord says to David, when your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers. I will raise up your offspring after you who will come from your body and I will establish his kingdom. And then listen to what he says. Verse 13, I will establish his, the throne of his kingdom, key word, forever. Forever. Verse 16 again, your kingdom will be made sure forever before me. That word forever shows up three times in 2 Samuel 7. And that's, that's the significance of that Davidic covenant. That God promised a forever king. Now, one of the things that we know as the Old Testament unfolds is David did have a son named Solomon. Solomon became a great king. And Solomon built God a house, a temple, just like what God promised. But Solomon's throne was not established forever. He didn't fulfill this prophecy, these promises. In fact, it was right after Solomon died where his son Rehoboam, because of Solomon's sin, because in his old age his heart turned away from Yahweh, from the Lord, that God judged Israel. And God, God split Israel into Judah and into the northern kingdoms. And the Old Testament ends with the Davidic dynasty in exile. The, the throne of Solomon was not established forever, which is why the Jews around the time of Jesus are looking for the son of David. They're looking for the Messiah, the one who would come, who would fulfill that promise to rule and to reign forever, the forever king. And they're looking for him because Israel, during the time of Jesus, is under the power of the Romans. When will the promise of God come? And she comes to Jesus and she places him in that category. You are the son of David. The, the real Messiah, the true son of David, the one who will reign forever. Now the question is this, how did she know that and why does she even care? In other words, if Jesus is the king of Israel, the Jewish Messiah, why in the world would she even care about that? Why would she come to him and address him by this name? And we'll get there this morning. Jesus' response to this woman in verse 23 is one of the most surprising things in the Gospels. And surprising for a couple of reasons. In fact, it is so surprising that many liberal scholars will go as far as saying that Jesus sinned against this woman in this passage. That Jesus was wrong in the way he treated this woman. But Jesus being wrong is never the answer to any biblical question that we ever have. That's the wrong answer, okay? What is the Lord teaching us in this passage? Why is it surprising? Well, it's surprising because of how it breaks with the normal pattern of Jesus Christ. You say, what do you mean? Okay? Every other scenario up to this point. Every person that comes to Jesus with sincere faith, nobody is turned away. And let that land on you. In other words, a hundred times out of a hundred, every person that comes to Jesus with sincere faith, not one person is turned away from Jesus Christ. He saves them all. He heals them all. I mean, he empties whole cities of sickness in the Gospels. And then you come to this story and you're like, man, this does not seem to fit the pattern here. The way that Jesus has engaged all who come to him. And so it's surprising in verse 23, Jesus' response is total silence. She comes, she's desperate, and she pleads for mercy. She even dresses him as Lord. She's humble. And yet verse 23 says she, Jesus doesn't answer her a word. I mean, try to picture that this morning and meditate on the word of God and try to see that scene playing out of desperate for mercy. And Jesus hangs back and doesn't say a word to this woman. There's something deliberate here in this passage that our Lord would have us to learn. 
It seems like Jesus is ignoring her. And then the, and then the disciples enter in, in verse 23, and their phrase is, send her away. Which is debated, okay, what exactly that means. It can mean two things. Send her away can mean with or without what she wants. In other words, send her away can be tell her no and tell her to go away. Or it can be please give her what she wants and send her away. It can mean either one of those. The context leans towards this question being give her what she wants and send her away. And, and, and for two reasons. Uh, uh, I think that's, that's what the disciples are asking. Number one is they've been witnesses to every other person that's come to Jesus. And a hundred times out of a hundred, somebody has uh, uh, entreated Jesus for mercy and he's never sent anybody away empty-handed. And they wouldn't expect him to start now. Number two, and, and even more clear, is Jesus' response to this question in verse 24 is a response to their disciples' request. Verse 24, when he starts talking about his mission to the lost sheep of the house of Israel, is directed towards his disciples. In other words, it's if I, but if I give her what, what she's asking for, how does this fit in with my mission? I was sent only to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. And so Jesus responds in verse 24 with this allusion to what you could call Jewish priority. The Jewish priority of the Messiah's mission. I was sent only to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. And Jesus is teaching everyone listening, teaching the woman, teaching his disciples, there's something that he wants us to learn about this concept of Jewish Priority, okay, and I appreciate Ryan praying this morning that God would help us to make God's word clear. I want this to be so clear of what this means and what it doesn't mean, okay. And so we're going to spend a good bit of time on this this morning. This is something that is taught all throughout the New Testament, okay. In John four verse twenty two, Jesus engages a Samaritan woman. So the Samaritans are kind of this uh, people that has intermingled between Jews and Gentiles. And it's almost like a half-step you know, Gentile. And Jesus says to this Samaritan woman in John 4, verse 22, he says this phrase, Salvation is from the Jews. And so apparently there's something that Jesus wants Gentiles to understand about this Jewish priority, the Jewish roots of the salvation that he brings to all the nations. Now, along the way, let's constantly define what that doesn't mean. Jewish priority doesn't mean that Jews don't need to be saved. It doesn't mean that Jews are saved in a different way than anybody else is saved. It doesn't mean that God chose Israel because they were so awesome and so righteous. In fact, Deuteronomy makes this really clear that it was not because of their righteousness that God chose them. In other words, Jewish priority, the, the, the only reason for it is before time began, God decreed, God willed, God determined to bring salvation to all nations through this Jewish lineage, this Jewish root. And we see that as early as Genesis 12, verse 3, of that promise God made to Abraham that in you, Abraham, God will bring blessing. To all the families of the earth. In other words, everybody's getting a blessing. Jewish priority doesn't mean Jews blessed, everybody else cursed. It means the blessing comes to all the families of the earth through Abraham, through this Jewish lineage. There is a historical priority of ethnic Israel that Jesus doesn't ignore, neither does he overthrow it, he fulfills it. You say, what do you mean? Listen. Psalm 147, verse 19. God declared his word to Jacob, his statutes and rules to Israel. He has not dealt thus with any other nation. In other words, 
one of the privileges of ethnic Israel is they were delivered the oracles of God, the very words of God. And the Bible makes this really clear. God didn't do that to any other nation. And in fact, when Paul is referring to the question, what advantage has the Jew in Romans 3? Paul says, much in every way. And then his very next phrase, uh, Romans 3, 2, is to them was delivered the oracles of God. They were given the word of God. They weren't more righteous than other nations. They're not saved in a different way than other nations. The privilege, the priority, is that God had determined to save the world through the Jewish Messiah. And no other way. It's the only way that salvation comes to the nations. Listen to how Paul says it in Romans chapter 9, verses 4 and 5. He says, they are Israelites, and to them belong the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the worship, and the promises. To, to them belong the patriarchs. And then listen to this. And from their race... According to the flesh is the Christ, who is God over all, blessed forever. Amen. In other words, you know, uh, the Messiah wasn't this, uh, uh, you know, uh, he didn't have this floaty, you know, um, uh, uh, you know, uh, ethnicity. The Bible says, no, he was a Jew. And, and, and that's true. Jesus was a Jew. And even more than that, he still is. In other words, he is the offspring of David. This is who he is forever. He is the fulfillment of God's promises to Israel. And then we come to this statement that he makes in verse 24. He said, I was sent to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. And the wrong way to understand that statement is Israel gets blessed and everybody else is left out. That's not what Jewish priority means. Jewish priority in the way this works through all the New Testament is the nations will be blessed through Israel. And so we see this theme emerge in the New Testament that salvation is to everyone who believes. And I hope you believe that. There is no distinction. But Romans 1, 16 says to the Jew first and also to the Greek. In other words, there's something that has to happen first before that gate of salvation is busted out, you know, busted wide open to the nations. This ministry of the Messiah has to be completed to the lost sheep of the house of Israel, to the Jew first and then to the Greek. We've seen this already in Matthew's gospel. You remember back in Matthew 10, Jesus sent his disciples on a preaching tour, a ministry. They were sent out to preach the gospel of the kingdom. And in Matthew chapter 10, verse 5 and 6, he says, don't go to the Gentiles. Go only to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. So we have Matthew 10 says, don't go to the Gentiles, only to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. And then, oh, what do you know? Matthew 28, the very same book, ends with go to the nations, go to the Gentiles. So which is it, Jesus? Don't go to the Gentiles or go to the Gentiles. And if you understand this theme, it's that this ministry of the Messiah, this testimony was first given to Israel. And then it, the gates were busted wide open to all nations. And that priority is important. And Jesus wants this woman and his disciples to understand this Jewish priority of his mission. He is the fulfillment of Genesis 12:3. In him, all the families of the earth will be blessed through Jesus. There's no other way. There's no other way. This is a connection that Paul draws in Romans 15, verse 8. He says, I tell you that Christ became a servant to the circumcised. Say, okay, Paul, why did Jesus come to serve the Jews? He gives you two reasons. In order to confirm the promises given to the patriarchs, that's number one, Jesus served the Jews to, to fulfill those promises given to the patriarchs. And then number two, in order that the Gentiles might glorify God for his mercy. 
He doesn't do away with these promises. He fulfills them. And then he opens up salvation to all nations. So why is Jesus speaking this way? There's something about this thing that he wants his disciples to understand. He wants this woman to understand it better. That salvation comes to the Gentiles through the Jews. Through the root of God's covenant with the Jews. Gentiles are grafted into Israel. That's the salvation language of uh, the New Testament. In fact, we are warned not to boast as though we were the natural branches. We were grafted in to the tree of Israel. We're not to boast about it. In other words, we were the outsiders. We were the separated ones, the far off ones who were brought near by the blood of of Christ. And so Jesus is teaching us here that all salvation comes through the Jewish Messiah. Or you could say it this way, all salvation comes through God's covenant with Abraham. This is the only way to be saved is to become a child of Abraham by faith in the Jewish Messiah, Jesus Christ. There is no other path. There is no other way to be saved. And so what Jesus is doing in speaking this way is he's drawing out this woman's messianic faith. He's about to he's about to display what kind of faith she really has. In fact, this is going to end with great is your faith. Jesus engages her in this intentional way to show how great her faith is in Christ the Messiah. We cannot understand this statement in such a way that Jesus was unwilling to help Gentiles for two reasons. One, he's already uh, helped Gentiles in Matthew's gospel. And so just think of how backwards this is, how it doesn't fit. If you say, okay, this passage means Jesus doesn't help Gentiles. Well, we back up and we come to Matthew 8 where we meet this Roman centurion that comes to Jesus that presents this plea for mercy and Jesus answers it. And Jesus gives mercy to this Roman, this Gentile man. It won't work. And then even in our passage, we cannot forget Jesus is the one who left Israel. In other words, he's the one who intentionally crossed that border, sought out this territory, this region of Tyre and Sidon. Why did he do that? It's not because he's unwilling to extend mercy. He's intentionally engaging this woman in this way. He's deliberately acting according to typical Jewish purity tradition. In other words, if you... You know, held to this purity tradition of the Pharisees, this is exactly what you would expect of the Messiah. Get them away from me. They're unclean. But Jesus is, is, is busting these paradigms off and he's redefining what it means to be clean and unclean in this passage. Verse 25. He doesn't say a word. Verse 25. She persists. She comes and she kneels before Jesus and she calls him Lord. She calls him Master. She says, help me, Lord. Help me, Lord. Now again, this plea of this Canaanite woman has fallen outside of these Jewish paradigms. And so Jesus presses it again. He presses this Jewish priority of the gospel. He presses it even more. And again, the aim is not to deny her. He doesn't deny her in this passage. The aim is to draw out that great faith, that beautiful faith in the Son of God. And so in verse 26, Jesus refers to children and to dogs. And even more so, this is surprising. Even more than the silence. This is surprising. This is not the typical way that Jesus speaks to any who come to him with faith, to any who come to him and plead for mercy. He says, is it right to take the children's bread and give it to the dogs? That's not a way to boast anybody's self-confidence. I mean, I hope at least that much is clear. If your goal is to boost somebody's self-confidence, you don't speak like that. Jesus has a different goal in mind. This, is, this reference to children and dogs is a reference to those who are in the covenant and outside the covenant community. Israel and the Gentiles. Those who are in 
the, the covenant of grace, the covenant of promises, and those who are outside. Now, one of the things that I noticed as you really read and, and, and are honest with the, that, that passage of Scripture, specifically verse 26 and this phrase of children's bread to the dogs, one of the things that struck me is that phrase right there on the lips of Jesus will bring to the surface the lens through which you view the world. It will. In other words, that phrase right there on the lips of Jesus will expose what your ultimate authority is. The way that you view the world. And here's what I mean by that. If the way that you view the world is through the lens of egalitarian feminism, okay? God made men and women the same. You know, anything a man can do, a woman can do better. If your worldview is egalitarian feminism, then the logical conclusion that you're going to read from this passage is Jesus is a patriarchal, chauvinistic, you know, uh, male mansplaining this woman. Okay? If that's your worldview, it's going it's to bring that discomfort to the surface. It's just a logical reading out, a logical conclusion to your worldview. Or think of it this way. If your worldview, if the lens through which you view the world, if your ultimate authority is these presuppositions of critical race theory, then listen, the logical conclusion here is that Jesus is a racist. Do you understand that? In other words, if your paradigms, your ultimate authority is this other thing besides the Bible, then what you're going to do is you're going to smuggle those paradigms in and it's going to be really uncomfortable for you because the, you know, the, the words on the lips of Jesus are in direct confrontation with those paradigms. Does it not bring it to the surface? Does it not reveal it? But if your paradigm is the Bible... If everything that God says is automatically right, then there's got to be something else going on here. The answer can never be that Jesus sinned. It can never be that Jesus sinned. The Bible determines what's right and wrong, not the paradigms that we smuggle in and impose upon the Scriptures. Jesus is not sinning in the way He is engaging this woman. What is he doing? He is reminding this woman that she has no claim upon him. Okay? That's the language of children and dogs. Children have rights. Dogs don't have a claim upon anybody. Okay? There's a humbling effect that Jesus is after in the way he speaks to this woman. Let me ask you this question. What if saving a soul meant wounding them so deeply that they would know in the depths of their soul that they have no claims upon Jesus Christ, that they are 100% debtors for mercy. What if saving a soul meant speaking in that way? Faithful are the wounds of a friend and deceitful are the kisses of an enemy. Our Savior is drawing out that faith. And we see it that her first response, there's no offense, she agrees. Jesus says, you don't have any claim on me. And she says uh, two things. She says, verse 26, yes, Lord, but crumbs. I don't have any claim on you, Jesus, but, but don't dogs eat, eat the crumbs that fall from the master's table? She's begging for mercy. This beautiful faith. It's what Jesus has been drawing out this whole time. She owns several things. Number one, she owns the fact that she has no claim upon Jesus. She's not, she's not troubled at all to fall at his feet, unworthy. Number two, she owns that she belongs to that condemned world outside the blessings of God. She owns that about herself. I am an outsider. I am separated from Israel. I'm a stranger to those covenants of grace, those covenants of promise. And yet, while she's owning it, she is convinced. This is, a, you have this, this is beautiful faith. You have, you know, this true perception of her own state. 
And at the same time, they're happening at the same time, these apprehensions of the greatness of Jesus, the glory of Jesus. And so she's owning it. She doesn't have any claim upon Christ. And yet at the same time, she is so convinced of Jesus's power. She, she is so convinced of Jesus's greatness that even a crumb or a morsel from Jesus's table, she is convinced will heal her daughter. She has great faith in the Son of God. She is an illustration for us. She is an example to us of saving faith in Jesus Christ. And there's a couple of things to say here. What can we learn about saving faith from Jesus' encounter with this woman? Number one, it's always born out of great need. In other words, nobody ever got saved. My life was great. I didn't have any problems. It was great. It was like an 8 on a scale to 0 to 10. And then I met Jesus and it was a 10. Nobody comes into the kingdom like that. Nobody comes and, 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 and believes upon the Lord Jesus Christ without a conviction of sin. In other words, who did Jesus come to save? He came into the world to save sinners. In other words, before this faith in the Lord Jesus Christ as the Savior is this preparatory work of God the Holy Spirit of revealing this great need and the greatest of needs that we need to be saved from our sins. She's an illustration of saving faith. And not only can we learn that faith is you know, born out of this sense of need, we also learn that real faith always apprehends something of the greatness of Jesus. She called him son of David. She knew who he was. She called him Lord. She called out for mercy. Have you done this? Have you done this? Have you found yourself in similar circumstances that you have this great need and you go to the only one who can help you, the Lord Jesus, and you beg for mercy? You don't have any claims. You're a debtor to the grace of God. You know, the only reason that you would never do that the only reason that you would never come to Jesus and cling to him with faith is that you are unaware of your need. You don't know how desperate the situation is. And the only reason that you would be unaware of your need is you're still looking to yourself. In other words, the very moment that you stop looking to yourself to remedy this problem would be the very moment where you understood the severity of the disease and the only remedy is Jesus. This is instructive for us of great faith. She's also an illustration of persevering faith. She kept coming. It wasn't, you know, Jesus was silent and she said, well, you know what, I tried. And, you know, I tried and I tried that Christianity thing once and and I asked for mercy and Jesus was silent. She kept coming. And I think there's a reminder here for us Christians, brothers and sisters, there will be times in our life where we cry out to God and there will not be immediate answers. That ever happened to you as a Christian? Her response is instructive to us. How will you respond when grace was temporarily withheld from this Canaanite woman, she bowed down and worshipped and called Jesus Master and Lord. That's what she did. Brothers and sisters, will you worship at the feet of Jesus as you wait upon the Lord for mercy? Is this how you'll wait? That you'll worship, that you'll bow at his feet, that you'll be satisfied in his presence until he shows you grace. This is a picture of beautiful faith in the Son of God. Great faith. And one of the things that we're going to see is she's content with just a crumb, but Jesus doesn't give her a crumb. Jesus gives her blessing. Jesus gives her salvation. She immediately receives the request that she asks of Jesus. And these two snapshots that follow are going to illustrate this principle in this passage. After demonstrating mercy to one Gentile lady, Matthew gives two snapshots of Jesus bringing blessing to the Gentiles on a much larger scale. 
Okay, that starts in verse 29 and again in verse 32. So understand the move that Matthew is making. Mercy to one Gentile, mercy to more Gentiles, mercy to thousands of Gentiles. That's the move in this passage. The argument is from lesser to greater. Look at verse 29. After Jesus heals this woman's daughter, he returns from Tyre and Sidon to the Sea of Galilee. Now, the geographical question is which side of the Sea of Galilee? Because it's the east side, if it's the east side of the Sea of Galilee, then Jesus is in Gentile territory again. If it's the west side of the Sea of Galilee, Jesus is in his own territory, his hometown, in Jewish territory again. And so, what's the answer? Well, Mark's gospel, the parallel passage, gives us the answer. Mark 7, verse 31, tells us that Jesus goes to the east side of the Sea of Galilee into the area called the Decapolis, the ten cities. And we see Jesus minister here already. And so we find Jesus again in Gentile territory. This helps us make sense of the repetition in this passage. Okay? So you're reading and you see this repetition in the Gospels and you're like, okay, I get it. Jesus is a healer. Okay, second time. Okay, I really get it. Jesus is a healer. Okay, third time. I really, really get it. Jesus heals a bunch of people. Well, there's more to it than that. This setting is important. In verse 30, we have another summary statement of the ministry of Jesus. And again, we find him healing. And, and there's an exact parallel to what we've already heard in Matthew's gospel. Exact same words. He's healing the lame, the blind, the crippled, and the mute. This is what he tells uh, uh, John the Baptist, disciples, and back in Matthew 11, when they come and John's asking that question about Jesus. Matthew 11, verse 4, Jesus answered them, Go and tell John what you hear and see. The blind receive their sight, and the lame walk, and the lepers are cleansed, and the deaf hear, and the dead are raised up, and the poor have the good news preached to them. In other words, Matthew 11, Jesus is healing and preaching the kingdom. And then Matthew 15, the exact same words. What's going on here? Matthew's point is to show us that the ministry of Jesus is exactly the same. This is who Jesus is. The only difference is geography. The only difference is geography. This is why in verse 31, Matthew says they glorified the God of Israel. In other words, that phrase makes the most sense if it's on the lips of Gentiles. That the Gentiles are glorifying the God of Israel. They're glorifying the same God. We see the same ministry. And so what we see here is that Matthew is intentionally showing us that the same mercy that Jesus has already shown to Jews in Matthew 11 is now shown and extended to Gentiles and not just this one Syrophoenician Canaanite lady, but to many Gentiles. Same exact mercy, same exact ministry. Great Gentile crowds are being healed by our Lord. And then we move one more step. In this passage, we're going from lesser to greater. He gives us one more glimpse of the scale and the scope of Gentile mercy. And now we're jumping into thousands as we approach verse 32. Again, we see Jesus in Matthew's gospel multiplying bread in the wilderness and feeding thousands. It's, all, it's almost an exact parallel to the previous miracle of Jesus feeding the 5,000s, the only difference is the total number of those who are fed and the setting. That's it. So what is Matthew presenting here? We have two feeding narratives. Liberal scholars love to play games. Man, they love to play games with stuff like this in the Gospels. And it sounds something like this. Two feeding narratives in Matthew's gospel and many similarities and only the numbers don't agree. So obviously what we have here is only one was intended by the author and the other was inserted by mistake. Wrong answer. Okay, wrong answer. Matthew is intentionally repeating 
the miracle of Jesus. They're the exact same verbs. The exact same words on the lips of Jesus. Verse 35, he directs the crowds to sit down. He's, he is the messianic host and he, and he calls thousands. Remember, this is only the men who are numbered. So there's way more than that there. And he's the host of the banquet and he calls them to sit down. And then in verse 36, he takes the loaves and he gives thanks. And he broke the bread and then he gave, gives it to the disciples. And the same things that we saw just a few weeks ago, that through the hands of the disciples, the, 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 the thousands are satisfied through the ministry of Jesus. Exact same words. Matthew is showing us that the same mercy that was shown to the Jews is also extended by the Messiah to the nations. And think about this. If all we had was the story of the Canaanite lady, we may be tempted to think like this. Jews get the mega blessing and Gentiles get the crumbs. These two follow-up stories show us Gentiles don't get the crumbs. Gentiles get the same salvation. They get the same blessing. And so this miracle passage shows us that the same power of Jesus is extended to the Gentiles. The feeding narrative shows us the same provision of Jesus is extended to the Gentiles. They receive the same bread bomb. Jesus just explodes the provision in the wilderness, not only to the Jews, but also to the Gentiles. Think of the kingdom. If it were, you know, the Gentiles sit on the back row and the Jews sit at the table and we just watch the Jews feast with Jesus. No, that's not the kingdom. Jesus says we're seated at the table with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. The same mercy that was shown to the Jews is extended to all nations. And so as Matthew moves through these three snapshots, we see there is no reluctance at all in our Lord to bring blessing to the nations. There's no crumbs. He throws a feast in the wilderness. Now, this is significant. Matthew's gospel is the most Jewish of all the gospels. You've heard that before. And yet, right in the middle of the most Jewish of all the gospels, we have this proclamation, this foreshadowing that Jesus is the Savior of the world. He's a Messiah for all nations. And the conclusion is not only is the power the same, not only is the provision the same, but the salvation is the exact same salvation. This is one of the mysteries that is revealed through the gospel of Jesus. Ephesians 3 verse 6. This mystery is that the Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body, and partakers of the promise in Jesus Christ through the gospel. Same salvation. Same mercy. No second you know, stage, you know, stepchildren. Same adoption. Same Jesus. How should we respond? How should we respond to this revelation that Jesus is the Savior of the world? Not just to the Jews, but also to the Greeks. I'll mention two things. Number one, we should make him known as the Savior of the world. In other words, as Matthew pulls back the veil, this is part of the glory of Jesus. He's not a tribal deity. He's not the God of one nation. He is the Christ. He's the Savior of the whole world. In fact, his gospel, when Jesus comes into the world, there's a proclamation that this is good news of great joy. And you remember how that ends. To all people. It's not this little thing. It's this massive thing. There's a prophecy in, uh, in, in the book of Isaiah. That it's too light a thing. It is so small a thing. That Jesus would only be a light to Israel. God says I'm making you as a light to the world. A light to all nations. One of the fastest ways to squander the time. That we have been given by our Father in heaven, is to live disconnected from Jesus' all-nations mission. It's one of the fastest and the easiest ways to waste your life. And you know, this is a reminder. Uh, sometimes this can be a wrong understanding, you know, in the church. Uh, 
Uh, okay, so, you know, admissions was important to Jesus, and it needs to be important in the church. And what happens is that you got a few people who really love missions and a lot of people who give those people money. Okay, so you got these senders and goers, which is true. You got these rope holders and those who go down in the well, which is true. Wrongly understood is that only those goers and only those ones who go down in the well care about missions. Wrong. Every Christian should care about missions. Why? This is who Jesus is. He's not only the Savior to Israel, He's the Savior of the whole world. In other words, this puts us in a category as we're more and more conformed to the image of Jesus, we should love missions. Every Christian should love missions. I'll tell you another thing that's often uh, misunderstood is, okay, we should love missions, and this is the way this works in the church. When you're single, before you get married, you, you love missions. And then after you get married and you have a bunch of kids, you love the family. Okay, And, man, I'm zealous for the nations when I'm single, but then when I'm married, I'm zealous for my family. False dichotomy. Everybody should love the glory of Jesus Christ among the nations. Even if you were converted at 48 years old and you don't know anything about the progress of the gospel among the peoples of the earth, you should love missions because Jesus is the Savior of the whole world. In other words, there's a deficiency in your life if you are unconcerned with the glory of Christ among the nations of the earth. This is part of His glory. May the Lamb receive the reward for His suffering. And this ought to be the part of the way that we bring up our children is to teach them not just to love this little unit, but to love all the families of the earth. And we need to grow. We need a, we need a growing, hot, holy desire for the progress of the gospel in all the nations of the earth. We need to be praying. It is a glorious thing when Jesus saves a soul and takes somebody who doesn't care about anybody but themselves and their own little niche and begins to give them a burden. And they find themselves praying, Lord Jesus, be glorified in Tokyo, Japan. Be glorified in Kurdistan. Be exalted, O Lord, in North Africa. Be exalted, Lord Jesus. Show your glory in China. And on and on and on. The Havu people of the Congo. In other words, it's the heart of Jesus. It is why He came into this world to be the, 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 the Messiah to the Jews. To bust that door wide open of salvation to all the nations. This is why immediately after Isaiah 53, I love this picture. Isaiah 53 is the song of the suffering servant. The, one of the most vivid descriptions of the death of Jesus Christ in the Old Testament. The very next words in the prophet Isaiah chapter 54. The very next words after the song of the suffering servant are about missions. God commands His people enlarge. Isaiah 54 verse 2. Enlarge the place of your tent. Spread abroad. Your offspring will possess the nations. In other words, this is supposed to be the way that we think. Jesus died, was crucified, raised, ascended to the right hand of God. The Holy Spirit was sent, poured out by the Lord Jesus on the church. And He gave us power to be His witnesses to all the nations of the earth. we got to think like that. In fact, the very next thing that Jesus says to his church after he's crucified and resurrected in this gospel is the Great Commission. Is the Great Commission. Matthew 28, verse 19. Go and make disciples of all nations. We should do that because Jesus is the Savior of the world. In other words, the mission of Christ should determine how you spend your life. As we see this revelation of who Jesus is and what he cares about, that ought to determine, okay, that's what I want to care about. That's what I want to spend my life on. And no, it doesn't mean that everybody goes to unreached people groups and plants churches, but it means that everybody cares. It means that the call is not to throw some money you know, in a box and live this unconcerned life of what you really care about, like uh, college football. It means like that stuff is so boring compared to this. 
Think about that. This is, this is, this is the way to spend your life uh, on the work of Christ that endures for all generations until the end of time. It's wisdom from God. What are you spending your life on? What are you praying for? What ambitions are you nurturing in your own heart? Stir this stuff up with glimpses of Christ from his word. And second, and I'll close with this. How should we respond? We should glorify God for his mercy. In other words, Ephesians 2. I love, I love this text. Ephesians 2, 11, uh, 12 and 13. We, brothers and sisters, are commanded to remember that there was a time in our life where we were cut off from grace. We were cut off. We were not born in this world followers of Jesus. We were sought out and our Lord showed us undeserved mercy. We had no hope. We had no God. And those who were far off had been brought near by the blood of Jesus Christ. What's the response? To glorify Him for His mercy. Thank You, Lord, for the forgiveness of sin. Thank You, Lord, for the Savior of the world. Let's pray. Father, we come to You today and we thank You for Your Word. And we ask, Lord, that You would stir up care in our soul, Lord, and conform us to Christ. God, we thank You for this picture of Jesus in this passage. And we ask that You would make us like our